I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 88 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking to Miko Hypenin. Miko is a global security expert and has worked at F-Secure since 1991. Currently, he serves as F-Secure's chief research officer. Miko has written on his research for the New York Times, Wired, Scientific American, and frequently appears on international TV. He's lectured at the University of Stanford, Oxford, and Cambridge. He was selected among the 50 most important people on the web by PC World Magazine. It was included in the FP Global 100 Thinkers list. Miko sits on the advisory board of T2 and Social Safeguard and in the advisory panel for the Monetary Authority for Singapore. In this episode, we discuss his early starts in information security, the rebirth of Telnet, security by design, the difference between privacy and security, mobile device security, IoT security, election security, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Miko, thanks for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm, I'm excellent. How are you? Great. Well, how are things in, in your neck of the woods? You know, we're certainly going through a, a global pandemic, but uh, how are things uh, in, in Copenhagen in Europe? Uh, no, we'll have to do it again. I'm in Helsinki. Helsinki. Finland. Yep. That's okay. I don't know why I thought of Copenhagen, but yeah. That's... Close. It's not that far away, but no. it's, it's the wrong, wrong capital. Yeah. But things are, how are, how are things in, in that your part of the world? Is everybody uh, holding up okay? Yeah, I'm coming to you right now from Helsinki, Finland. And uh, well, it's springtime over here. We got snow last week, but it's getting better. And obviously it's pandemic time here as well. So everybody's working remote. Yeah, and how how has that affected, you know, certainly running a, or being part of a fairly well-known and, and well-respected company for F-Secure, how does that, have you guys already been kind of a remote working company or is this something new for a lot of folks? Um, very big part of our workforce is is able to work remotely and has always been able to, remote, to do remote work. Um, having said that, we still had plenty of like old school developers with desktop computers and desktop research stations, which all had to now leave the office and go to people's homes. And there's plenty of like details to get right when you have hundreds of workstations, which didn't have VPN because they never left a corporate network before, which are now suddenly sitting in somebody's home. So we've had our challenges like every organization, but I think we'll come out stronger from the pandemic. Sure. And, you know, as far as <clears throat> how the technology you work with and on your kind of day-to-day life, you know, for protecting networks and systems and kind of cybersecurity, has there been a shift in how you've had to focus maybe threats that you've seen, you know, kind of external threats for your clients or for, you know, for even for yourself, you know, we all, we're all having to be part of it. Um, now that we've seen more of a remote workforce, how, how has some of the, the attack trends changed that you've seen? Um, F-Secure works in different different parts of the security landscape. We, we've, we've had a, a very long history for security products like endpoint security solutions and VPNs and antivirus and filtering. Um, over the last six years, we've expanded pretty rapidly into the consulting space and we do a lot of like 
penetration testing and audits and, and things like that. Um, there's been a big shift over the last two months. Lots of like planned projects, especially in the consulting space, uh, were momentarily put on hold as obviously all companies had to adjust that hold on what's happening and, and uh, you know, are we still going to be able to continue all of, all of the projects we are supposed to. But uh, that seemed to be pretty temporary and, and it's mostly business as usual for us, both in the product space as well as in the consulting space. Gotcha. You know, I think some of the some of the things we've certainly seen, you know, we're, we're talking on Zoom now, we had to shift that from, from even using different kind of voice OP technology, but you know, we certainly see that a lot of... Um, you know, companies have now kind of come into the limelight for the different types of products they offer for remote, uh, you know, workforce, let's say, you know, whether it be Zoom, Teams, Slack, everybody's kind of jumping into maybe a lot of technology. Um, do you see that as possibly being a potential risk where a lot of companies are quickly adopting technology that they might not have had, you know, a chance to vet before allowing their workforce or attaching it to their network? Yeah, there are definitely, you know, p- potential major problems there as well when you have to realize that your employees will take the initiative themselves and they will use the tools they will find on the internet just to get the things done i mean when you look at the explosive growth of zoom basically was the tool that just worked so employees went to their tool that just worked and in many organizations this was never approved or never really uh, given guidance on and 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 this is the new normal this is the way organizations work it is organic and uh, it departments have to cope they have to realize that the 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 best product from usability point of view will work we saw a very similar revolution 10 years ago with bring your own device before iphone was commonplace in corporate uh, work workplace employees started using them privately and then just brought the iPhones and iPads to the workplace, whether the corporate uh, IT department liked it or not. And this is now happening with these remote working tools as well. Yeah. And definitely, you know, kind of going back, I mean, you've certainly seen, again, a lot of technology kind of come in and out of um, existence and they certainly all bring their own productivity gains, but security threats. I mean, kind of walk through a little bit about your history. I mean, you've been doing what we now call cybersecurity or information security for some time, even before we even called it that. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. I've, I've, um, I'm going to be 29 years working for F-Secure in June. So uh, it's been a long run in a very quickly moving industry the whole industry cybersecurity industry didn't really exist at all when i when i started working and when i look back at how how the industry grew to where we are today there's very few of the original players left i mean fsecure has been around since 1988 um, and that's a very long run for a company the only of the existing brands that are, are still globally known, which are older than us, would be McAfee. They started a year before F-Secure. Even F-Secure has changed the brand. We used to be called Data Fellows mm-hmm. when we started, but we, we renamed the company in the end of 1990s. Now, F-Secure has always been in the... Well, we're a public company nowadays, but we've never been owned by anyone else. Of course, McAfee has gone through major different owners through these years. But we are one of the original gangsters, if you will, and being 
working in this industry for so many years and now many decades has given me I don't know, an interesting perspective into how a small cottage industry changed into a multi-billion dollar global behemoth and how a small startup, I was employee number six when I joined, has changed to a, a sizable company. We have 1,700 employees around the world now. Yeah, it's definitely been been a, been a pretty interesting growth, but you've, you've also seen a lot of things change. But you know, one of the things I always find interesting about you know, information security and what we do is there are some constants. You know, what what are some of the things that you've seen um, still be an issue that you know you saw 20, 30 years ago that we're still struggling with today? There's many, many things which we think we've solved and gotten rid of, and then they come back to bite us again. It, it's surprising. Um, there's plenty of examples. I think one of the more recent ones I've been pondering about about is is um, how we used to have a world where everything was connected all the, all the computers were online on the internet and there were no firewalls and all the ports to all the services we were running were open and accessible like 20 years ago you could just finger unix servers over the internet and they would respond and give you back information or you could do you know, uh, host name transfers and see every single host name under a domain name over public internet. None of that works anymore. However, when we are now entering this brave new world of connected devices and internet of things, many of these problems that we already solved are now coming back. My favorite example being Telnet. Telnet, which is uh, an awful a very old, ancient terminal protocol, completely unencrypted. We got rid of Telnet successfully on our computers, on our desktops, on our servers years and years ago because it absolutely sucked. And now, for some reason that I can't explain to you, it is making a comeback, not on our computers, but in our doorbells and in our coffee machines. And many of the IoT platforms we see in these low-cost devices today have Telnet D enabled, and we are seeing more and more attack traffic on the internet over Telnet, which already died once. So yeah, we, we keep repeating some of the mis mistakes we found and fixed already, and I can't really explain to you why we do that. Yeah, it was funny, you know, when this whole, you know, when. when Zoom's vulnerabilities started getting some some press and attention. You know, at the same point, if you go on, you went on to Shodan, you can see this massive increase of people using RDP, um, mm -hmm. which again is a you know decades-old technology <clears throat> with some very limited security. But you have to worry that are people just going to put in this new technology, no, the old technology in the new new areas, but not either secure it or never go and take it down. It might be a temporary fix. Um, mm -hmm. Those are the types of things I can see certainly being um, a risk as we kind of change our workflow. Sure, sure. And 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 if we look at any of the any of the data breaches or any of the leaks or or any hack ever, basically it's always either a technical problem or a human problem. It's it's always either a bug in the code or humans doing stupid stuff, and Obviously, fixing bugs and fixing vulnerabilities can be hard and expensive, but at least we know how to do it. And, you know, you, you find the bug, you fix it, you update all the systems, you de deploy the patches, you make sure everything gets patched. It can be done. 
but we have no similar feature for human brain. There is no patch for humans. People will always be making stupid mistakes. They will always get fooled into clicking on in on the wrong link or they will always use the same password everywhere and, and the only fix we have for that is education and education is is a much harder problem than patching software vulnerabilities and 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 education almost always fails and that's coming from someone who's now spent i don't know 20 years trying to educate users users will never learn they will always click on the wrong link. They will always double click on the wrong attachment. They will always fall for every phishing scam. That's just the way it seems to be. Do you think there's, you know, things that security leaders can do to kind of, um, you know, maybe put in some compensating controls for that? Because that, like I said, it's the hardest thing is to change human behavior. But it seems like certain technologies are out there. But, you know, I was thinking this weekend, there was a couple things I was either signing up for. I had to turn multi-factor on. It wasn't on by default. You know, are we at a mm-hmm. stage where you know, some of these things that we do have out there should just be on by default? Or, you know, where's the resistance that we that you think that happens for that not being on by default? Uh, well, it's, it's kind of hard to fix things which are already deployed. So mm-hmm. it, it really goes back to security by design. If, I mean... Uh, passwords and authentication and two-factor authentication, that's a great example. Passwords made sense back then when they were invented and, and passwords became commonplace in the end of 1970s. I mean, we, we had shared computer systems, but there was no need for passwords because they were used by a very limited amount of users. Then when user growth started happening first in academic settings, we needed accounts with passwords. And and, and, and many of the things we still today tell to users come back from, from the, the original um, password culture from decades ago. Like, like the guidance that, you know, always remember to use a unique password for every different system. Don't write down your passwords. Make sure you have long and random passwords. And that was great guidance when you needed three passwords for three different systems. But you know, today you need 300 passwords. Uh, My password manager has uh, 420 different systems right now. Now, obviously without a password manager, that guidance makes no sense. Make sure to, to, to create 420 unique random passwords and don't write them down. Nobody could do that yet. That's still the guidance you keep hearing. Every time there's a news article in some newspaper about how to pick up a good password, they give the same wrong guidance. Use these you know, long passwords and don't write them down. We, we really should be moving beyond this culture and beyond passwords. I can't wait for passwords to die. Yeah, it's funny, but <clears throat> part of Part of that too, where I've seen the struggle is there's um, certain standards or audit things that people have to implement for that. And it's, it kind of makes me pull my hair out when I see some of that saying, well, look, you know, we're, we're, my recommendation is not to put in password expiration longer than 15 characters. It doesn't have to have special character, you know, some, some more modern, let's say password um, scheme. And some auditor or somebody say, well, that doesn't meet our compliance. You know, how, how much of this are we still kind of in our own way in the community of not pushing 
change, we, we kind of get held on to a lot of these things that we'll say, well, this is the way we've always done it. Yeah, I, I guess we need more leadership there. And and, and some companies are, are trying hard and are doing the right things. I, I think Apple is a good example. They've introduced many things around better authentication mechanisms, starting from, from their secure chips on their mobile devices and now in their in their laptops as well, so they can store information securely on the devices, including authentication information and the fact that they made first the fingerprint readers and, and then face ID secure enough, private enough and usable enough that people would actually prefer to use them. And, and the fact that they are able to do this without sending your biometric information back to themselves, but only storing it locally on the devices, those are all great initiatives. And, and now that they've started pushing sign-in with Apple, where the idea is that now you're able to log into other services with, uh, with your mobile Apple devices as well, um, they continue to innovate in that space. Uh, Apple is doing many of the right decisions uh, in this space. And also the fact that they are positioning themselves as, uh, as the anti-Google and, and how Google makes all their money by breaking your, your privacy and they are trying to be on the other end of the spectrum, uh, I think is the right positioning. I don't know how well it translates into business for them but um, they seem to be doing many of the right calls from my perspective. Yeah, yeah I noticed that and it was either the, one of the user conferences or the past year. I mean, they really spent some time talking about data security and how important they take it and how that became part of the product DNA, um, mm-hmm. in, which, is, which is good. You know, I think there's still a challenge that where I think a lot of people don't understand the difference between security and privacy. You know, if somebody... Mm-hmm asked you, you know, how, how do you break it down? And where is the intersect between the two and how are they different? Mm. Yeah, that's a tough question to answer because privacy and security are not direct trade-offs for each other. It's, it's, it's really a question of, of, it's not really a question if you have, if you have um, something to hide to, to protect your privacy. It's, it's more a question about like, what do you have to protect? And, and, and today we live our lives 50% in the real world, 50% in the online world. And the online world is so different because there is no geography and everything you do can potentially be saved and stored forever. So even if you're not worried about privacy or worried about the things you do right now becoming public, everything can be stored and saved and they might be coming to haunt you in the future. Um, I was just discussing last week um, with with someone about all these um, uh, online Facebook questionnaires and and funny things people fill up with their personal details for no real benefit. And he couldn't understand why I was worried about people putting in their addresses or, or, or cities where they've lived over their lives into a online questionnaire. Mm-hmm. And I tried explaining to them that even if you have nothing to worry right now, you know nothing about the future. And who knows, you might be, you might have an enemy in the future. There might be someone who wants, who hates you in the future, who wants to hurt you, who wants to find information about you, who wants to expose you, who wants to, to uh, steal your identity. And the more information you put out there, the more benefits for that to happen to you, you are generating. And if you get no benefit from doing that, why would you ever do that? But, but people never think about these things. And, and, and if, if you look at the 
market behavior. I mentioned Google and Apple just a moment ago and how Apple is, is using their more privacy-centric design as something to generate sales. That seems to be failing. If we just look at how, if we just compare Android and iOS, um, uh, Android is Android is 86% of the world's mobile devices, iOS is only 13% and Android is growing faster. So in, in the market space, um, people don't see the benefit of privacy. They go for the cheapest and easiest product in almost all cases. Yeah, we often see that too with things in, in the respective stores, you know, whether it be Apple stores or Google Play. Um, in you know how how concerned should users be you know when it comes to mobile malware you know we're so focused on a lot of things on the endpoint for um, you know laptops desktops but I, I always tell people look I mean you're, you're basically carrying a small computer that's always on and always connected in your pocket don't dismiss the fact that it doesn't have vulnerabilities and quite frankly you're probably on that more than anything else and I think since the pandemic started I've seen you know I would occasionally get you know, text message scams with links. I must have gotten three or four in the past five days. Uh, I've seen an uptick in mm-hmm. that. So, you know, for, as, as we shift to being more of a, a mobile world uh, for a variety of reasons, how secure and how, basically how concerned should people be about mobile devices and potential malware on them? I've been working with mobile security for, for quite a while. Um, since I am based in Helsinki, I've been living in Finland all my life, and I still remember very vividly when the center of the mobile world was was Finland with Nokia. So 1990s, when the first smartphone um, revolution happened, it was being run from Helsinki, and, and we've always had very close connections between F-Secure and Nokia. Our headquarters today are like, I don't know, five miles apart. In fact, the guy who, who started F-Secure is right now the chairman of Nokia. So <laughs> he's actually the chairman for both companies at the moment, although the companies share no ownership or none of that. The, um, the, the, the longer perspective view on what's been happening in, in what, what are the big, big revolutions in security, which really have changed the way security works for end users. One of the biggest revolutions really has been the introduction of, of, of the second generation mobile operating systems, iOS and Android. Um, the, I mean, iOS came out 12 years ago, Android roughly a, a year later than that. And if you compare um, the security model of our mobile phones to the security model of our computers, our phones are clearly superior, no doubt about it. And this isn't obvious to people on the street. Um, I think many people somehow automatically assume that these small mobile devices are less secure than these real computers, when in fact, it's exactly the other way around. And the reason simply is that the the architecture and the operating systems are much more modern and much more restricted. An easy way to look at how the restrictions work in practice is that if you take, let's say you take and a, a brand new iPad Pro and a brand new MacBook. Um, one of them is a traditional computer. One of them is 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 a a, uh, a tablet. They look the same. They have roughly the same features. They have the same screen, same resolutions. Actually, the iPad is a little bit better in performance, but basically the same things with one huge and invisible difference, which is that you can't write programs for your iPad. 
If you are a programmer, you can take your MacBook and start coding and run your own programs on your own MacBook and give them to your friends and they are able to run your programs on their MacBooks. And you can't do that with your iPad. You have no right to program your own iPad. The only way you can run programs on your own iPad is that you write a program and then you send it to be approved by the manufacturer. And of course, the same thing applies to Android as well. And we've seen this model before. For example, in games consoles, it, everything I've said applies not only to your, your iPhone or, or iPad or your Android device, it applies to your Xbox and your PlayStation as well. Obviously, Xboxes are computers, but they are the kind of computers that you, the owner, are not allowed to program only by getting approval from the game publishers or from Microsoft, your programs will run on that Xbox computer. So these new restricted platforms have no malware. There's no malware for PlayStations. There's no malware for Xbox. There's practically no malware for iPhones. And there's some malware for Androids, but it's, it's like the, the likelihood of running into Android malware is like 100 times less likely than running into malware on your Windows or OS X or, or Mac OS Mac OS computer. So it's it's um, it's one of the big shifts which has really happened and 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 something we really should should uh, you know acknowledge and 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 uh, applaud that um, these new operating systems have fixed many of the malware problems we used to have and still have on our computers. You know, and, and some some folks have said, you know, when when people build these closed systems, that they're not open source, they're not um, available for scrutiny. I mean, when they do close them down because they make it proprietary, um, is there a risk in that that we need to be concerned about? That you know, maybe I can't rip it apart and maybe find other vulnerabilities, or is there enough ability to do that from a security researcher perspective that you feel comfortable? The basic idea behind open source security is that all vulnerabilities will be found because anybody can look at the code. And, and, and that's, that sounds great, but we know that's not the way it works because nobody wants to read through millions of lines of somebody else's code mm -hmm. and do professional audits. So vulnerabilities, unfortunately, are not found that easily just because something is open sourced. It's, um, it's, it's much more complicated than that. And, and you could argue that the closed source security models of Microsoft, for example, um, they've really started like putting so much effort into their security architecture, even though it's a closed source environment, that they are actually doing a good job with, with the work today. Now, I've always been a big fan of open source. I think open source really is changing the world and it is giving great benefits and lowering the barriers. And, and it's been great to watch how Linux has really taken over the world over the last 20 years. Um, Linux, which runs 86% of the world's phones, like I just mentioned, Android is on 86% of the world's phones. And of course, Android is a Linux-based operating system, runs on Linux kernel. Um, and this would have been hard to see 20 years ago. I mean, again, um, I still remember when Linux was, was very small, brand new in beta. Uh, coming from from uh, Helsinki University before it really started making the international rounds, and if I look at like Finnish people in all history, um, I believe the single most important Finn, um, at least the Finn who has brought more 
um, wealth and prosperity into the world than anyone else is Mr. Linus Torvalds, the guy who wrote the original Linux kernel in the, in the early 1990s in Helsinki University. Um, you just have to look at not just what Linux kernel has done, his, his other big innovation, which is Git, which then turned into things like GitHub. Mm -hmm. um, how much did Microsoft pay for GitHub? Something like 7 billion USD or something ridiculous. Um, so yeah, he's changed the world, not just once, but twice. And uh, that is a, uh, that's a remarkable thing by, uh, by a single innovator to do. Oh, certainly. I mean, it's, it's like you said, uh, to have something that's now running so many of the mobile platforms, but, you know, we certainly, you know, are, are those, is that an operating system that you can see making its way into more connected IOT devices? Um, and kind of what's the risk there? Because you said it is kind of open source. We have this chance to maybe make these things secure, but we, we do hear quite a bit that things from doorbells to security cameras, to things that are just connected to the internet, um, are running more and more services. They're 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 reachable to from the outside world. I mean, is there, you know, where where does that kind of raise the hair in the back of your necks to be a little concerned about some of these, you know, now again always on operating and always connected operating systems. <clears throat> pardon me, you know, on the internet all the time. Very big part of the IoT devices of today are running Linux-based systems. And I'm sorry to tell you, but many, very many of those are hopelessly insecure because they are built on outdated Linux kernels and there's no easy way for the end user to maintain or update or patch these systems. Why so? Well, because we're speaking about consumer technology and the most important selling point for consumer technology is price. So if security is not a feature any of the customers are asking for, the vendors would be stupid to spend money into security. So the, the software platforms are the cheapest and easiest um, that they can build. And this is why we have all these problems and we have all this telnet traffic on the internet targeting these IoT devices with telnet D port open. And yes, most of those are running Linux kernel. So most of the malware traffic we used to see in on the internet was Windows malware, pretty obviously. And that's now changing. We're seeing more and more Linux malware, but it's not Linux malware targeting Linux laptops or Linux servers or Linux cloud instances. It's it's malware targeting Linux doorbells. Interesting. And, you know, and with that, I mean, what could... You know, again, people say, well, what's the big risk? I don't have anything. I don't store anything on there. And it's, it's again, that user education say, well, it could either be a pivot point to get into your network or, you know, could it be used for things like a distributed, distributed denial service attack? Or you know, if we see things with like a, a not pet yet type spread, you know, could it be something, could these be the types of devices that can do a massive spread of something very quickly? When people are educated about, how easy it is to hack into IoT things, almost always the reaction is that, okay, that's, that's, that's interesting, but I don't really care. Like I, if my fridge is hacked, I don't care. It's a goddamn fridge. Like what's the worst that could happen? Because they only think about the fridge. And you know, the worst thing is that somebody crashes my fridge and I lose the food in the fridge, which is not the end of the world. Well, yeah, except... It's not about the food in the fridge. It's not about the fridge. It's about the network where the fridge is sitting. Because in most 
networks, especially in home networks, the weakest link in the network is an IoT device. And if the attackers are going to find a way in, it's less and less likely that they get in through your router or through your Wi-Fi or through your Windows or Mac laptops. It's more and more likely they get in through the doorbell or they get in through the fridge. And nobody's thinking about this. And the, the, the thing that I think we need to see before people realize this is some kind of a catastrophic event, some kind of a global outbreak where everybody wakes up in the morning to realize that every single laptop in the household has been encrypted by a ransom trojan and the way the ransom trojan got into the network was through an IoT device. Yeah, and and that's again trying to walk people through that. They they definitely get a little concerned, but I also find people kind of have this almost um, expectation. Let's say a little bit that you know now that oh gosh, you know it's, if something like a, a not pet you hit a massive amount of individuals that there could be some kind of retaliation. And this kind of gets in this whole idea of when we talk about cyber war, what, what would somebody do? What, why, why do people think that maybe the government's going to do some type of retaliation, whether it be kinetic or cyber, you know, how, how much should people be concerned that either their government's not protecting them from either criminal actors or uh, state sponsored actors. And, you know, if something does happen, should there be a response? It all comes down to how reliant we are becoming to the internet. It's it's fascinating to think about how how the internet grid is similar to the revolution that happened with the electricity grid. Like electricity really became commonplace in the end of the eight, 1800s. Um, in, in my home city, we got electri- the first electricity grid in 1877 to replace the gas-lit streetlights with electricity streetlights. So that's 150 years ago. 150 years, it's a long time, but it's not that long a time. And if you just imagine how much the electricity grids changed our our world and changed our societies and changed our lives and changed all the services we use and how much business and how much connectivity was generated by electricity, that's excellent. But pretty obviously at the very same time, we became as as humans very, very reliant on electricity grid being there and electricity grid always working. Um, And for example, I I live on an island, a little bit distant place. We sometimes get power cuts and uh, sometimes those can be extended, like, you know, you get a day or two without electricity. And that's really sobering because when you realize that, you know, all the connectivity breaks down and 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 how, you know, the base stations run out of batteries, which means obviously your mobile phone works for a little while when power is cut because it runs on batteries, but the base station runs on batteries as well. And they won't work for more than an hour or two, and then you're completely off the grid. Uh, of, of, of the internet grid. So we've become very, very reliant on electricity. And, and the same thing is happening right now with the internet grid. And, and this, this change hasn't, it's, it's not complete yet, but it's underway. In a decade or two, our societies will be just as reliant on the internet grid as it is today on the electricity grid. And this means that everything stops. The electricity could be up, but if the internet is down, everything stops. 
there is no communication, there is no manufacturing, there is no traffic, there is no information dissemination. Everything shuts down, just like today, shutting down electricity shuts down everything. And so, I mean, yeah, and to, and to that, I mean, if if a nation state were to take out a, the, the internet grid, so to speak, from one country to another, you know, is there cause for retaliation at that point? You know, do you expect it to be more of a, again, more traditional kinetic warfare? Or do you see people, you know, maybe, you know, somebody hacking back and, you know, where are the, the kind of gray lines with that? I, I see cyber, if you will. I see cyber as, as just another, another domain for conflict, just another domain for war. Um, technology has always shaped the wars we fight. It has always shaped the way we we, we um, act in our conflicts. I mean, if you look at the different domains for war, hundreds of years ago, we only had land war because we had no other technology. We just had the swords and the bow and arrow. Then technology got good enough that we could build warships. So we got sea war. But the innovation of sea war didn't take land war away. It just expanded. We now were fighting wars on land and on sea. Then we got air war. Then we got space war. Now we have cyberspace war. And a typical conflict today happens in all of these domains. If you look at action um, or, or conflicts under under uh, underway right now, let's say Russia versus Ukraine, they are fighting in all of these domains, on land, on sea, in air, in space, and in cyberspace. And I don't think we'll ever see a cyber war, like just two countries fighting each other, fighting a war in 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 cyberspace or on the internet. I think it's always going to be one part of a bigger picture. And I don't think cyberspace will be the last domain. I think there will be more domains created by technology where we'll fight, we will fight future wars. Yeah, and, and certainly you were uh, part of a very interesting documentary, Kill Chain, the Cyber War in America's Election, um, that was out this year. It was really great, really insightful. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we see that too, is that it's not, you know, I still think a lot of folks think that when you think about offensive hacking that it's going to be for data theft somebody's going to steal a credit card or pii um but there's really there's the use of it to influence um to change the way people behave or to do things within a certain subset of a, of a country whether it be your own or somewhere else so kind of talk, talk to us a little bit about how you kind of see that evolving you know with a nation state potentially trying to influence a another country's election um and, and what does that really mean as we go forward? Information operations are are shaping the public opinion in a in very unpredictable ways, and and the examples we've seen over the last five years are really surprising. I don't think anybody would have seen would have guessed beforehand that we actually would really see. Russia trying to affect the outcome of the U.S. presidential elections, but that actually happened. I don't think anybody would have forecasted the the Brexit voting outcome out of United Kingdom, and information operations clearly can play a major part in things like these. However, information operations and and uh, 
affecting the public opinion through social media mechanisms only really work as long as people are not aware of this being done on them. So it's really a question of awareness. It goes back to the education question we were discussing earlier. Once people realize what's being done on them, once they realize that I'm seeing these messages and these news items and these ads because a foreign nation state wants to affect my, my opinions, it no longer works. It, it sort of falls apart. So it, it really is a question of, of awareness. Um, and then we have the problem of actual like technical hacking of elections. Um, and I'm not a big fan of online voting at all. Um, I think r- traditional voting has worked pretty well for a pretty long time. And, and the benefits we get out of moving voting into new technologies really should be drastic benefits for us to make the trade-off of, of um, you know, running the risk of getting our elections technically hacked. And there's plenty of discussion about this in the HBO documentary you mentioned, and I, I wholeheartedly recommend this to everybody. It's called Kill Chain. It's on HBO right now, and I recommend everybody to see exactly what can be done today with today's technology by um, trying to hack elections in the United States. Yeah, it was It was also kind of scary, too. It was, you know, I think a lot of folks think, it wasn't kind of talked about this our the entire recording is that, you know, that it doesn't necessarily take uh, a tremendous amount of skill to change a lot of these systems. Um, a lot of these are systems that were put in, have not been updated. You know, I think some of the vulnerabilities that Harry was showing were, were still present 20 years later, that these, mm. these are devices that are just not being um, maintained or cared for like you would expect for something with a gravity. And I think, you know, what I thought about was like, geez, if this is so critical to democracy and we're going to deploy this type of technology, it needs some level of attention. And it just doesn't seem like it's there that these are voting machines that are just simply vulnerable. Yeah, but it's it's also easy to like think about problems like these in 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 a manner which is just too straightforward. Like, why don't we just fix all these mm-hmm. things? Why don't we just update all these machines? Sort of similar problem that we have in in OT technologies or or ICS industrial control systems technologies. Stuxnet happened ten years ago. The U.S. Uh, Israel attack against Iran was, you know. Is it now 11 years ago? Mm. Many of the things which were exposed uh, as attack vectors in the industrial control machines back then still exist today. Why is that? Well, it's because of legacy systems and it's because of very long life cycles of devices like these. Like when, when you buy voting machines or when you buy a plc to control your pumps in your factory you expect to use them for years and years decades and decades and it doesn't really matter if the latest product that you could buy today would have great security if you're not going to buy it if if you're still using the old legacy systems for 20 more years That's the platform that's out there in the field. And that's the platform that's getting attacked today. And and that's why 
you know, fixing legacy systems and protecting the machines which are vulnerable and publicly connected is so crucial. These aren't simple problems. We are speaking about very large networks of very large amounts of devices, whether it's ICS systems or online voting or our digital voting systems. Yeah, and, and that goes to the point too. You know, when we talk about cybersecurity, you know, there's certainly the confidentiality of you know the traditional CIA triad of confidentiality, integrity, and availability. But a lot of these, you know, with their, with them just aging themselves, seems that you know, particularly when we talk about you know industrial control systems, SCADA, and all that, that these are systems that could just inherently have flaws, break down over time. But because maybe the um, knowledge base that designed them is now retired or not available, that they can just simply fail on their own. Is that as much or an equal concern that we could from a cyber attack on them? I guess it is. And it comes down to connectivity. And it comes down to the most, to, to me, the most important property of the TCP IP, TCP IP networking stack, which is that TCP IP can reroute. Um, the whole innovation, the reason why we are using TCP IP as the groundwork for internet today is that it was designed to operate in, in very problematic, under very problematic circumstances, like in the middle of a conflict network would continue to work. And if one link would be cut, it would automatically reroute and find a way from point A to point B. This is the basic idea. And this still is very, very valuable today. However, it becomes problematic when you try to keep things disconnected on purpose. And when you look at security of things like online voting or security of things like, like factories, traditional thinking has been that these things are safe, even if they're outdated, even if they're legacy systems, even if they are unpatched, as long as they're offline. And now it turns out that it's surprisingly hard to keep these things offline because TCP IP reroutes. So if you have disconnected network, if you have internal networks, how do you confirm that they stay disconnected and that they stay internal forever? And this might seem like a simple problem, but it's not because companies change, companies merge networks, companies get acquired and their systems are connected to different systems, employees add modems to private networks or internal networks so they can work remotely. Um, as time goes by, surprisingly many of the systems which were not be supposed to connect to the public internet end up getting connected. And typically the connection isn't straightforward. It's actually very cumbersome and goes through multiple hops, but TCP IP routes. If you try to send a packet from point A to point B, it will find the route, no matter how complicated the route is. And this is why we regularly, regularly find surprising systems from the public internet, systems which are clearly not meant to be on the public internet. And when we discuss with the company who, who owns the system, they are over and over again surprised how it's visible to the public internet because clearly it was supposed to be in an internal-only network and it no longer is. Yeah, and you know, it's funny, you know, now <clears throat> talking and talking through that, I think it's about, yeah, it's not that, um, you know, to the way that traditional, the kind of OSI model goes and in, in putting these systems online, where now we look at things that are infrastructure as a service or, or 
um, you know, software as a service, it's very easy to kind of spin these things up and they're inherently online. Um, you know, whether it be an AWS server, um, Azure or Google, you know, you can stand up a server in a matter of minutes and a lot of that connectivity is always there. And does that also kind of breed a false sense of security for folks? Not just because they think, oh, geez, it's a big company and they're going to handle security, but because it's so easy to put it up, they kind of out of sight, out of mind, they don't think about putting the proper security controls or kind of doing that security by design when putting these services up? Well, we do get rid of many basic security headaches by going to the cloud environment, but we do expose ourselves to completely new kinds of security problems. Cloud mechanisms are uh, are a revolution and, and they do generate plenty of benefits for well, just you know, productivity and 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 from money point of view, but also for security. And if you look at the investment being done by Amazon and Google and Microsoft to make sure that their cloud infrastructure is as secure as possible, it's no wonder the security level of these things are very high. I mean, they they put a lot of effort because they know that if you know if their cloud infrastructure would somehow get hacked, it would be catastrophic for their business. But when users, their users, which are companies around the world, move all of their data into a central cloud storage, it also becomes a massively large target. So we have to evolve as we move our systems from traditional uh, self-hosted systems into cloud-based systems, we have to evolve our security standpoint as well. Gotcha. Yeah, it is part of uh, of that, that evolution of... Adapting with the change and, and and being, you know, what we say with security is, uh, you know, be flexible and adaptive to these types of changes. Well, Big I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Mikko. That's M-I-K-K-O. And that's the easiest way to find me. And uh, Doc, thanks for having me on the show today. My pleasure. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.